0: Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast, powered by CFM. I'm Mark Fleming Williams. In this episode, I speak to Alex Isidorcek, the former head of data science at Cotu and now founder of CyberSyn, the new Snowflake backed data as a service company. In this episode, Alex and I discussed the business opportunity he sees in buying up various datasets and making them available to a wide market of potential customers. Separately, I'm in New York this week where I will be moderating a panel at Battlefin, so I look forward to seeing many familiar and new faces there. So in this episode, I'm joined by Alex Izadorechek of CyberSyn. Um, thank you very much for joining today, Alex. Thanks, Mark. It's great to be here. Excellent. Um, CyberSyn obviously is a is a very fresh and new name, which may not yet be household um, in terms of people's people's familiarity, but it, but it's sure is soon soon to be. Um, but in terms of household names, before that um your previous role you were you were am i right in saying you were head of data science at co2 so you so that might be a bit more familiar to people
1: that's right i was a partner and head of data science at co2 which Fantastic. as you mentioned is probably more well
0: known than cybersyn so yes. far okay um so brilliant well uh, why don't we uh why don't we go i mean i i often i often kick things off by saying um what is the how did you how did you first Let's go back to how, how did you first come across what is alternative data? Where, how did it come across, your, um, come across your radar?
1: Right. Well, I was in college, um, and um, I was fortunate enough to be introduced by a gentleman named Alexey Loganchuk, who was a recruiter, but also a, a thought previous, A
0: previous guest. A
1: previous guest. Oh, so I was fortunate enough to be introduced by him to a partner at k2 Um, And little did I know that that one introduction would turn into sort of a career and a life-changing sort of job for me. Um, And so I took an interview in Huntsman Hall in Wharton and um, listened to this partner talk about some of his problems. Um, You know, it was kind of funny. He asked me, uh, what can you do for us? And I got one sentence into it. And then he said, listen, this is what we need. Can you do it? And I said, yes. And that was basically the interview process. And I think that, you know, I knew how to code, I knew how to web scrape, but I was at Wharton, so I knew what EBITDA was. And I think that that was the, the impetus. And then I interned at Code 2.
0: Why did you have both? It's often, the, it's, often the, um, it's often the holy grail a bit people talk about. Maybe it's getting easier as time goes on. But to have that market or business knowledge and also the technical knowledge and to be able to kind of uh, be a practitioner. How did, you, how, did you happen to, how did you come to have both?
1: Well, so so growing up, I knew how to code, or I taught myself how to code. Um, I was always a nerd, I was interested in programming. So there was, you know, since I was 11, in some ways I've been writing software, coding in some form, I knew that was the case. And I pushed myself to go to Wharton because I felt that, you know, I was never gonna be the top 1% mathematician or the top 1% engineer. And so it made sense to be a little bit cross-disciplinary. And when I got to Wharton, I was still gravitating towards the most technical course load I could find in the stats department at Wharton is actually in the business school. And this is a little bit pre data science. They didn't call it data science yet, but it became clear that you could sort of do a technical statistics degree mixed with the traditional Wharton finance course load. So, you know, I think that I just had a record of trying to, to have one foot in each. I think, you know, being interdisciplinary is particularly helpful. Uh, if you know you can't be in the top 1% of a narrow field.
0: No, 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 absolutely. No, I think it's a, it's a very, very smart. And, and as, as has been proven, it was, it was forward thinking um, as, cause as I said, it's a, it's, it's very much what people are looking for and and, and struggling to find. So definitely. Um, and so this is with, we're, thousand we're 2015, which is, I mean, it's, it's always hard to say when it's the early days of alternative data, but it wasn't, it wasn't late. Um, and so the, the you were were you kind of joining as the as the were you it or was there was there something that was were you joining institution which was already quite good at, at, at doing so that kind of thing?
1: everything was very early really the first alternative data efforts at co 2 uh were the efforts around when i was an intern right so i wrote the first you know set of alternative data code i guess at co 2 while i was an intern um, and you know, when I came back full time, I think that there was no immediate plan to build a huge team. I was definitely not, you know, the job offer coming out of college was not to be head of data science, <laughs> but you know, the, the, the field was moving very quickly. I think CO2 was particularly, the leadership there was particularly sort of interested and had a vision for what alternative data could mean for their business. They embraced it. And then, um, you know, we started growing the team incrementally and, you know, once you're six months into it, you know, I was young, I definitely thought about, hey, and, and I think the team at two thought about, hey, maybe we should hire a senior person from tech to lead this or something. And we interviewed folks, um, but, you know, you get to asking them, you know, what's the difference between McDonald's and Chipotle in terms of business model and they have no clue. And I was already six months into the job. I could write code well enough. And I sort of knew something about the buy side. So I think it just organically, I became the best person
0: um, to run it.
1: Um, and then we started building the team.
0: So you join in June 2015. And in March, judging by your LinkedIn, in March 2016, you're head of data science. Is that is that faithful? Is that is that right?
1: That, that's, that's correct. That's correct. And I think what's missing from that LinkedIn is... I was sort of also working for part time for them in college. Right. So after the internship, I was kind of involved at arm's length while finishing my last
0: year of college. So they knew you. So they knew what they were what they were dealing with. Um, but uh, just just in order to give that give that a bit of um, uh, context. What just can you just uh, very, very briefly introduce CO2? What What is it? What was it? What's What does it look like?
1: Yeah, so I, I definitely don't want to speak for CO2, but I know, I
0: know. And I was aware when I asked the question, but it's just useful. for Right.
1: right. So for those not familiar, it's a it's a, it's a large uh, investment platform focused on tech. Uh, they're traditionally known for being a tiger cub um, in that, you know, that's the sort of heritage. And obviously the business really started um, as a um, hedge fund, traditional equity long short hedge fund. And it grew, and a lot of that growth happened while I was there into kind of a multi-stage um platform where you know we built out a growth fund, a venture fund. We had a systematic fund for a while, we had thematic funds at COTU, and I hear they're now doing a series of other things around structured products. So the you know, the asset base grew and I was kind of there for that ride. And, you know, they're now well-known in Silicon Valley and they're well-known on Wall Street. It was, it's very funny when I meet people who ask about CO2, if they're New York people, they know about the hedge fund, they, they don't know it's a VC firm. And when I meet people in Silicon Valley, they know it's a venture firm, but they don't know that it actually has a large hedge fund component. Mm. So, you know, in that sense, it's, it's a pretty interesting firm that I think paved the way for what, um, multi sort of stage investors could be um, in, in in many ways and started competing in areas that I think they traditionally weren't in, but became very successful in.
0: And the the unifying factor then is a technology focus across the different ways of attacking it. Is that right?
1: Correct. Yeah. So technology focus and, and look, and the other part of the unifying focus is data. We have, a, you know, KOTU has a single data platform across the whole firm. And you know, you don't have to take my word for it. Thomas and Philippe, the, the the two brothers that run the firm, have talked about the role of data
0: in that approach a lot. And uh, okay, so um, so let's not let's not dwell too much on KOTU, two because, as you say, you're not um, it, it's not what you're here for really. Um, but so uh, you take me, take me, take me out of co two. How did how what's what's the what's what's the process? Um,
1: well, I had the good fortune of wearing many hats
0: um, while at
1: Co two, and one of those hats was getting the incredible opportunity opportunity to invest in or participate in investing in um, data infrastructure and data science companies. And you know, as as often with VCs, you sort of have a power law distribution. And for me, the power law focuses on Snowflake. And so I had the great fortune of getting to know the Snowflake um team very well um and so when I left KOTU um I was in touch with Frank Slootman. and he sort of floated the idea of coming to work for Snowflake and I think I was you know going from a fast moving place I think I was hesitant to go to a large public company um I sort of had an inkling that I wanted to, to to start a business or you know maybe even sort of, just take a break. Um, but what got me very interested is Snowflake had launched this data marketplace products. Um, for me, it, it had an obvious product market fit, saved a tremendous amount of time. I think that I was can very I, interested. Can I ask, in it. It, can I ask a, a yeah. challenging
0: question? Because it, yep. it, it seems to me that um, the so we've been very much since since the financial crisis of 2008 and and before, but not that far before. We've been in a in a period of tech essentially, and the the technology giants have risen and grown and and um, and have you know they they dominated the the largest companies in the world, and everyone knows the Fang companies et cetera, and it and it really has been the era of the tech giants. Um, and then in the last couple of years, and I, and I don't want to, it's not that far off, you know, 2021, 2020, 2021, then there was a, there has been a period where some of those tech is going to grow forever and will be the, will be the central story forever has been, um, a bit questionable and a bit, um, a bit in doubt. Um, and, uh, there's been a lot of faltering and, you know, the VC money has, has, has gone, et cetera. Um do you Do you still believe in in the kind of the technology sector do you still do you see that that growth and that strength and 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 is that still um does that have the same future that it that it perhaps used to uh yes, I think if you
1: look at a longer time frame, you know technology in the last two hundred years in America has kind of been behind every major progression um or step function change in our sort of g d p so I think that ultimately I'm bullish on tech. Um, you know, it I think been, that it has been it has, it been, has been.
0: been, but at the same time, I don't know. It, like it would have been so technology allowed, for example, the drilling of oil in in Iran in Persia sure. or whatever in in 1930. But you didn't want to be investing in the drilling company so much as in the oil company, which was owning the drill the the oil rights. sure. You know, sure.
1: And I think that there's you know, and that's part of what technology investors need to figure out is which business models will be the winners and which will be the losers. I, I don't, I can't endorse any particular business model, but I do think tech will be the growth engine. And, you know, I think that the one thing maybe people got wrong, um, is that interest rates would be 0% forever and inflation we're sort of in a post inflation era. And I think we've quickly found out that that is actually not the case. And so if I'm skeptical on one thing in the future, partially based on the data i look at every day um would it would not be that tech is no longer relevant or tech won't be the growth driver i think that will remain true i think i'm skeptical whether we return to a zero interest rate world anytime soon so i i think that you know people in in investing and vc and the technology world have sort of looked at the last year as like an anomaly and people are sort of waiting for things to the funding environment to improve and things to get back to normal. Normal being zero interest rates and growth at all costs. And I think if you look at the last hundred years of financial markets, that late 2010s period of no inflation, zero interest rates, high growth, that's actually the anomaly. So I think that the thing I'm skeptical of is, you know, what does it mean for business models if rates, you know, never go below 3% for the next 10 years. I mean, I mean that, that's a real possibility. And I think that that's not being talked about very frequently. Um, I think everyone's just waiting for everything to go back to exactly like it was, you know, in, in, in early 21. And I think there's, there's no reason to believe that that's necessarily the case. Um, so some tech business models won't work, right? If you're in fintech and you're dependent on free capital, Or cheap capital, um, you know, without calling anybody out, right? If you're financing consumer microloans or something and you're dependent on easy borrowing, that could be broken.
0: So, did you, so in sum, you didn't uh, get out of the tech investing, well, you, well, actually, well, as we're going to explore, you didn't really get out of the tech investing industry, you, you very much changed your approach to it. But um, right. I,
1: I, I, you know, I've had people joke, you look, you top ticked leaving CO2 or something. Um, in, in the sense that the NASDAQ was kind of at all time highs, I think, when I left. Um, that was not intentional. I had no specific insight that that was the case. And I'm still a huge believer and fan of CO2. They manage the majority of
0: my assets. You leave. You leave Co2 in November 2021, and um, you've been um, in stealth. You and I were talking not long after, and you were you were very uh, cards close to the chest about about what you were working on. Um, but you've been in stealth for a for a, for a, for a good while. Um, so, how did uh, tell me what is CyberSyn and how did it come about?
1: Yeah. So, returning to my story from that from that brief detour. Um, <laughs> I think uh, it came about because Snowflake launched this data marketplace and I thought that had obvious product market fit. I didn't want to work for Snowflake, um, but I thought there was something there. And simultaneously, I was noticing in the news that a lot of the legacy data vendors think the Nielsen IQs, the NPDs, the GFKs were getting acquired by... um, private equity by ADVENT, by H&F, and, and, and sort of rolled up. And, you know, these are really fascinating businesses. They're, they're endless interesting. I think data as a service is very much underappreciated. Um, Oren Hoffman has some great articles about how to think about these businesses, but they're they're wonderful businesses. They have very low churn. They have huge ACVs. Their gross margins are amazing. I mean, these things back at 2021 prices should, in theory, be trading at the kind of 40x sales multiples that we saw a SaaS trade at. And I think in some ways, they're underappreciated. In other ways, maybe some of those businesses um, had some, some, some internal issues that the private equity firms are hoping to turn around. Um, but I think anybody who's worked with legacy data vendors kind of knows that, look, it would be nice if everybody provided daily granular data that updates all the time, that's seamless, that's you know on Snowflake rather than being on FTP. Um, you know, that is pre mapped, that is, you know, clean. So there's, there's all these things that I thought, look, you know, if somebody was to build a new data vendor, um, there, there, there's things you could do on the technology side. The challenge in building a new data vendor is you need capital to do it. Um, and, you know, that's what cybersit is. We're a new data as a service company that sells data. Um, it's, it's kind of a fun pitch to describe to VCs. It's, we're not a data marketplace. We're not an infrastructure company. We're not an ETL company. We literally sell data. Um, and it's data that we acquire. And we can talk about there's different ways to acquire data. Um, but it's data that we acquire, clean up, transform, derive, you know, add value to, and um, ultimately sell in the Snowflake marketplace. The, you know, I kind of pitch it as private equity for data assets where our goal is to you know, acquire asset A, acquire asset B, and hopefully one plus one equals three, um, where the combination of those assets becomes more valuable. And so on one hand, you know, we're underwriting these data sets that we're buying. On the other hand, we're adding value and combining them, cleaning them, mapping them, keeping them fresh on Snowflake. So removing all the ETL work, but also doing some science on top of them to sort of make them provide answers rather than be to sort of just raw data, if you will. Mm. Um, so that's Cybersyn in a nutshell.
0: I'm trying to I'm trying to think of a I've been racking my brain trying to think of a good metaphor, but probably Oren Hoffman's already come up with a better one. But uh, and I and I haven't come up with one. But it's it's the issue is um, so and there have been articles written and and um, there's a wonderful Abraham Thomas kind of the the, the commercials of a data business um, I think piece as well. But the idea is that it, the the beauty of being a data business is that you've got this um, asset, which with every it, it grows in strength as time goes on. Because one of the great benefits is is history, and so the longer you have it, the more history you have, which is a, which is a great thing. And it's very hard to go back and create history. You know, it's very hard to to go back in time to create history. So that's a nice thing about about it continuing. Um, it's wonderfully sticky, um, because when you've got, when you're selling data and you're kind of sitting on this, this pile of data and if people are buying it, then they've got no reason to kind of stop buying it. Um, so, it, and so you're just going to keep accruing more and more customers. Um, but the issue, as you say, is, um, how do you, where do you, how do you start? Like, how do you, um, because it's basically buying it's, it's almost like buying royalties it's almost like buying um, there's there's a metaphor it's almost like buying Michael Jackson's back catalog, isn't it because there it is, and it exists um and you're so as you sell it then you're then you're getting the money for it. but the difference I suppose, is that Michael Jackson isn't making records anymore, so it's not growing in the same way um but it's uh but so from that perspective you're when you buy a data set in order to add it to your pile um you're having to buy an asset which already has value. Or right. you are trying to find a day uh, an asset which the owner doesn't know has value. Uh, when we spoke before, then I, I said, you know, you're, it's like trying to um, buy a buy a chateau of a of a of a dozy dowager or something who doesn't know what. It yeah, does. I mean, I, I mean, I think that it's going to be hard to pull the wool over somebody's eyes, right?
1: I think generally speaking, enterprises understand that their internal data has value, and I think that there's a lot of tailwinds to that. I think in the COVID pandemic, people realized hey, real-time data is 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 critical in running my business. If I don't understand how COVID cases are trending on a hyper-local level, I don't know how to run my operations. So I think in some ways, businesses realize intuitively that their internal data has value. They've spent the last 10 years building internal data science teams, um, mostly to do with internal data. And I think that You know, the advent of LLMs, AI, and so on, means that proprietary, properly licensed, wholly owned data sets will be tremendously valuable um, for training some of these LLMs. Um, And, and, you know, we can talk about sort of the the challenges that training data on on, where, where you scrape it and take it from other people will have. And so as a result, like I think businesses intuitively know that their proprietary data has more value now. So I don't think it's about pulling the wool over somebody's eyes, but I do kind of see it. I I do like your analogy of buying royalties or buying. um, Somebody described it to me as a little bit like Netflix buying content, right? So it's not as if, you know, the producers of The Office didn't think The Office was valuable. It was just a question of whether Netflix could extract Sort of disproportionate value based on their approach than the rights holders of the office and so similarly i think there's a lot of enterprises that have valuable data but it's narrow and they're not in the data as a service business they have no data science expertise they don't know how to make their data set representative how to make their data set accurate how to map it how to you know make it actually reflect something real in the economy and they would have to put in substantial investment to hire those people Acquire adjacent data sets, right? And so the question is as an enterprise, are you best positioned to, to get into data's, data as a service if you want to monetize your data that way? And for some enterprises, the answer is yes. Great. For other enterprises, the answer is no. And that's where Cybersyn comes in, right? Where we can pay upfront, the business gets a guaranteed return, um, and we combine their data sets with other things, transform it, clean it up, and sort of go from there. And look, I mean Mike. Do, do, do they
0: do they remain involved? The uh the people whose data sets you're buying up?
1: It it's it's a details, case by case basis. Um okay. how involved when these are all details in a deal. Ultimately it's it sort of doesn't matter. I think what matters is that we You know, my core expertise is combining these data sets together, cleaning them up and making them representative. And I think if you can do that, then that data becomes valuable, not just to asset managers, but to all types of other businesses as well.
0: So you've just you've just raised money on on this uh, on this vision, basically raising sixty three million dollars in a Snowflake led funding round. So Snowflake, you've already name checked a few times. You're kind of doing it on their data marketplace. So I can see their um, I can see their motive, you know, and I can see that they could be easy to convince. Um, what did you, were you convincing other external investors of the merits of this as well? And what, what did you find? If so, what did you find landed with them? What were they, what were they kind of convinced by?
1: I mean, I had the great fortune of not having to pitch very many people in the sense that, you know, from the onset, I think Snowflake believed in the idea. Um, I think that, um, you know, CO2 obviously have a very close relationship there. I think... I would like to think they would support me in a lot of different things, but I think that clearly that, you know, they have a very specific thesis on on data and they've seen me up close and personally execute. So I think their ability to evaluate me as a founder um, I think was straightforward. So I've the good fortune of having Thomas LaFont on my board. Um, nice. you know, I think in some ways he's he's been a mentor. Um, and somebody who in many ways has shaped my career and my life. So I think, you know, I, I didn't have to cajole KOTU to invest, but I did think that, you know, the the pitch made sense and it financially made a lot of sense for them be part of it. I think Sequoia is a firm that was and is competitive to KOTU in some ways. Um, I've, as a result of competing with them, I've had kind of a relationship with them and have gotten to know the partnership very well. They're, you know, a very unique firm. I think that, you know, they they obviously have a history of being involved um, in Snowflake as well. So I think that sort of there was a lot of benefits to working with them um, that, that that I thought made sense. And I think from their perspective, they they again they saw from a competitor perspective what we built at CO2. And so I think in some ways the product founder fit made sense. But you'd have to ask them.
0: Yeah, 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 I have to get. what well, I'll get them on the podcast. Um, sounds good. Okay, um, okay. So, uh, you've been, you've so CyberSyn uh, kind of begins August 2022, but it's been, it's been obviously in 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 rapid growth mode. Um, well, let's let's talk about um. So where are you at? Is it a is it a vision? Are you buying data sets? Are you still uh, stalking data sets to be bought? Where where how is how is the how is how where are we in the in the creation process?
1: Yeah, well, we've done some acquisitions. So I'm very excited by some of the proprietary data we have. Um I think some of it is is unique. Um and so you know now we're scrambling to launch product as quickly as possible. One of the things that the decisions we made that has, you know, I think so far proven to be the right decision but i could be corrected is we've been giving a lot of data away for free um so a lot of common data sets that, in my mind are sort of the beginning for any external data effort we sort of just give away for free they're public domain data sets so it's mostly a convenience um sort of product if you will we restructure these public domain data sets map them you know against a single entity map so make them very joinable the idea being that hey if you want to use the irs data and you want to use BLS inflation data, and you want to use uh, bank failure data from the FDIC, and you want to merge that all together, like we've done that mapping for you, if you will, as as, as this kind of free service. And so all you have to do is download one of our data sets or mount one of the data sets on Snowflake. Um, I think that that, you know, has proven to be like a really great conversation starter with potential customers. And I think that a lot of our customers and industries outside of asset management Sort of need this as they're starting to develop their external data strategy. Because as I've written about on my own blog, I think before you build an external data strategy, like step one is to just make sure that you can ingest free data before you spend money.
0: For sure. Okay. So you've started say so the the free data and making it more usable. Um, and you've acquired some data sets. Do you have a are you are you able to talk about the data sets you've acquired?
1: Uh, I'd rather not, because I think that some of them, you know, I, I think we'll we'll be announcing some of them soon. I think in general, they all fit into the category of what consumers are spending money on and time doing, right? And the underlying thesis is, and, and obviously with for the alternative data folks listening, like this this has been a common thread, right? Like the consumer discretionary is probably the most alternative trade data traded sector, right? But I think that. One, I think that there's some new data sets there that maybe have been not discovered or not properly used or limited in some capacity. And then two, I think that that data in particular has the most applicability across multiple industries beyond asset management. And so that's where we're starting.
0: Um, What does does in theory as a type of data set, because it strikes me that there are different types of data being made available. I, I think during COVID, we saw... Uh, quite a lot of people going. Hey, I could maybe I could you know I well, I could web scrape something or I could I could just whip up a data set and and sell it. Essentially, there was a lot of kind of nimble movement going on. And yeah. then at the other end of the spectrum, you might have a big sleepy company which has been around for seventy years and and does does its day job and then gets some you know whiz MBA who who comes on board and says, Hey, we've got all this data which we can monetize, and that goes back all this wonderful history, and 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 so suddenly. This big company has data which they can sell. And where would you be on that spectrum in your sweet spot, or would you be all across it? Well, what would you look for?
1: Yeah, hopefully across it. I think I'm most, you know, I think that there's two approaches, right? And, I, and I'll break down the two types of data and the two approaches. I think approach number one is what I call bag of data, right? Which is, which is you've got your value add is combining a bunch of data sets, you know, same COVID, right? Combining all the local states and country authority, COVID reporting data sets together, right? And even though that's all public data, if you could map all of that data together, combine it, right, you could probably sell it because it's, it was such a pain mapping those data sets together. Um, and, and this is kind of a bag of data sets because you're basically, no, no one asset in that category is worth a lot, but combined that bag of data is, worth, is probably worth something, right? And then the other side is kind of what I call one key data sets. Um, which is that, okay, you've got some relationship with some source, and it it could be an old, stodgy kind of, you know, firm that has never considered selling data, or it could be, you know, a very innovative, large company that, you know, data service is their next step, right? And monetizing their internal data is their next step for whatever reason, right? Um, And so I think that we're we're experimenting with both approaches to a degree, right? I mean, in some ways, our free or freemium data sets are, are kind of rhyme with the bag of data set approach. And then obviously this, this, the, the commercial paid stuff that's coming, um, rhymes with the one key data set approach. So I, I, hope to do both, but in terms of types of data, I look at it this way. Um, I see there being two types of data, one being ground truth data and one being panel data. So ground truth data is where you have certainty that you have a hundred percent coverage of a population, right? So. You know you have the actual daily financials of a of a of a company right so you know the truth for sure um now the problem with these data sets is they're very expensive you you often can't get them right so you clearly couldn't get them about public companies as an example and um you know the the breadth of these data sets is usually pretty narrow right and then the other type of data set is what i call panel data and this is what has been most popular in alternative data so this is where you know, you have a panel of users of consumers or of businesses or of something, and you see some percentage of their activity. And so you don't have the whole population of consumers, and you don't have the whole populate, or you don't have the whole set of their activity, but you sort of have enough where you're you think you have a representative sample-ish, right? And so I think that these types of data sets have been very common in alternative data, the you know, credit card panels is an example. And I think that there's value in both types. And I think the ultimate value lies in crossing those two types, where you use the ground truth data to calibrate the panels. And I think that's ultimately, you know, the one plus one equals three piece that I'm most excited about.
0: But it, it strikes me that with with these data sets, I'm in both sorts, really, then data isn't created out of nothing and it's not quite like a michael jackson royalty where once the once the song's been made um you know you can just buy the song and you own the song in that the live ongoing data still needs to be created and come out of something so if it is the big sleepy company um then it's still coming out of their day job so you need to keep the relationship with them so you need something like that or if it's the if it's the person with the web, the whiz with a web scraper who just has an idea, some maybe that person needs to keep the web scraping going themselves somehow. There's a mechanism there. Either way, are you, are you, you are, this is kind of why I asked what the relationship, the ongoing relationship is. Because if, you, if you're buying the whiz with a web scraper, then they become an employee and they can keep it going. Or are you buying a license to the data, which lends itself to that first company because they need to keep. Run, churning the wheel to create the data, and you yeah, just need I to think, be there. I think,
1: I think at the end of the day, you do need to keep the data sets going. So whichever approach you take, um, you basically need to have some visibility or some ability to ensure that whatever is generating the data is a going concern for the long run. And then, you know, similar to the Netflix royalty analogy, you sort of need to ensure you have a long-dated enough relationship with that firm that you know, you don't get rug pulled essentially on access to the data. So it's about making those incentives work.
0: Is that a, what, what do you think that is? Is it a hundred year contract or a, or a 10 year contract? Have you, have you, have you, have you, have you entered these kind of negotiations yet?
1: Yeah. I mean, look, it's, it's a long dated contract. I think hundred years is a bit of, you know, <laughs> think about what, what was true a hundred years ago in the United States. So I think that it's Hong Kong, ago-
0: basically it's a Hong Kong contract
1: right that that might be that might be too long but i think that yes like these long dated contracts do do make sense and you need to make sure it's there's something in it for both parties
0: interesting okay um okay and so what's the so the vision is if we if we if we so there's a benefit of um size in terms of, as you say, you know what the con- the customer wants and so you're you're very expert. You're able to whip the data into shape and get it, get it. There'll be a stamp of reliability, essentially, because it's a Cybersyn data set. So everyone knows what they're getting and there will be, perhaps you you've talked about a bit of a standardization aspect, which is, so you're making a, you're making a kind of consumable product out of this. Um, what is the... Uh, do you are you do you do have a kind of, I don't know, like a five year vision you can talk about, about what all your data sets together might look like in, in five years?
1: I mean, the way I pitch it is the goal is to build a SimCity for the real world, right? So when I was like 12, I sort of thought the job mayors actually did or governments actually did um, was, you know, a real life version of SimCity. And obviously that's not true. But then there's an interesting question of why can't that be true. Right. And could we enable better business decisions, but also better policy making using these kind of real time data sets. And I saw the power of these data sets in my last job. And so I think that in some ways, like success for me looks like if the Federal Reserve is making interest rate decisions based on this kind of real-time data, then, then we've shifted the world forward. And I think in some ways that's the goal um, from a business perspective. Look, I mean, the largest data as a service companies are worth uh, tens of billions of dollars. And, you know, the largest SMP um, is like a hundred billion dollar market cap company. So I think that there's clearly room to run in terms of building a, a, a very meaningful sort of enduring company in the space.
0: I would you not put Bloomberg in that in that space?
1: Yeah, they're just not public. So
0: I don't know how to value them. Okay, fair enough. Right. Um, But and um, what it strikes me, uh, we've been I've been remiss because we haven't talked about customers and and the way that relationship works either uh, so far. So um, so you you kind of hinted at it that uh, perhaps the corporate world and the less the less uh, savvy Um, alternative data savvy customers might be, might be a focus. What, what, who are you, who are you aiming for?
1: Well, first of all, I think that, um, I'm, I'm aiming for anybody who uses data, right? So I think in some ways that's a big vision, right? But, um, I think it it makes sense to aim high. So it's not as if I'm excluding asset management, hedge fund customers, or traditional alternative data customers from the equation. I think in some ways, those customers from being on the other side of this, are are great because they're very, um, you know, sophisticated, nimble. Um, they look at things very, very quickly. They move fast, right? The downside to that market is that there isn't a lot of them, right? So, you know, how many firms are really spending more than twenty million dollars a year on their data efforts? Not many, right? Um, so, I think it's just it's it's not a big enough market to build a big company in. Um, But it's obviously probably a little bit ahead of the rest of the world in terms of the cleverness and sophistication around external data, because they had no internal data to begin with. Um, I think when you look at other industries, um, you know, the last 10 years has seen kind of the emergence of these large data science teams. And everybody from the hot tech startup to a large established 100-year-old firm probably has a data science team now. But those data science teams have mostly been focused on um, internal data. Um, and so the question is, okay, well, what about the external piece, right? And, and I think that this is what attention might be might be turning to in, in, in some way and what I'm focused on. Um, but at the end of the day, our product is a technical product. We are not an application company. We are a data company. And so you need some level of sophistication to interact with our products uh, because we sell the end of the day clean data but data not an application
0: do you see and in and and turning again to kind of five or ten years down the line because this is this is early days of a big vision um who do you see yourself in 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 competition with do you see all the all the data providers all the large ones some some we've name checked already um are going to be turning in the same way because it's been uh, alternative data, particularly from this podcast perspective, has been a has been a kind of finance hedge funds markets game. But there has been a, a talk of of turning to towards corporates. Do you see um the, Do you see yourself doing battle with with all the familiar names from the alternative data world in the in that corporate space? The
1: alternative data space is very specialized, and I think at the end of the day, if the common sort of, or or if the names everybody thinks of the Ernest, the Yipit and so on are successful in the corporate space, then that rising tide will lift all boats. Right. And I think that if some of these alternative data vendors or companies that grew up serving the buy side, um, you know, succeed in sort of serving a broader market, I think that's ultimately, will go to show that, you know, this kind of finance hedge fund born approach to data science has legs and I think that would all ultimately sort of rise and lift all boats.
0: Fantastic. Fantastic. Is there anything which we should have talked about which happened that we haven't? Uh,
1: you know what? I, I, I don't think there is. This was a sort of great conversation. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> Me too.
0: Excellent, Alex. Well, um, very exciting. I'm very, it was worth the wait. I've been uh, been looking forward to doing this for a long time. So very exciting. And uh, I'm wishing you the best of luck with, with the new venture.
1: Thank you. And, you know, I'll take the opportunity to plug, um, sort of, um, you know, our own company in the sense that we're hiring. So if listeners are interested, um, you know, what are you looking for? Uh, we're primarily hiring analytics engineers. So to, to, to degree that, um, yeah, to the degree that, uh, you have listeners who are in that space in alternative data. Um, and kind of want to work with unique data sets that maybe aren't on the market at scale, you know, we have a a sort of professional team approach. But, you know, we're growing the team and there's always room for the best people. Fantastic.
0: Well, thanks very much, Alex.
1: Great. Um, Thanks so much for having me.